What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Many of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, which is my effort to find the most interesting people in the world and sit with them for hours while I ask questions in an effort to learn. So it would mean the world to me if you would subscribe to the show on your favorite audio platform, watch episodes on YouTube, and tell your friends and family about the podcast. My goal is to help millions learn from the world's most interesting people. So let's get into today's episode. Polina Marinova Pompliano is the founder of The Profile, the author of a brand new book, Hidden Genius, and also happens to be my wife and my best friend. In this conversation, we talk about her book, Hidden Genius, and all of the lessons and insights that she packed into this one book. There's been years and years of her reading thousands of profiles on the world's most successful people and companies in order for her to distill it all down into this one book. I've read the book multiple times. She's read it to me more times than I want to admit. And in this conversation, we talk about all of those lessons and insights, but also have a little bit of fun at the end to make sure you stay for that. Here is my conversation with Polina Marinova Pompliano. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Polina here, my wife, my best friend, and also the author of Hidden Genius, the secret ways of thinking that power the world's most successful people. Before we talk about the book, uh, we went to Barnes and Noble over the weekend. And when we went to Barnes and Noble, you went right, I went left. We were looking for the book because someone had messaged you and said that they saw a book that was in their Barnes and Noble, which it wasn't supposed to be. The book technically comes out today, but Barnes and Noble cheated. They they jumped the gun. <laughs> they pump faked everyone to put some of the books out. So we went, of course, because we got to go see, is it in our local Barnes and Noble? And when you went right, you ended up empty handed. That is a lesson for life, usually. <laughs> I went left and I found the book. And I caught, I caught on video you walking over and seeing it for the first time. What were you feeling? It was crazy, mainly because... I was not only was I not expecting to see it because I was like, oh, like one local Barnes and Noble made the decision to put out some books because they got a shipment early. But I was like, surely it's not going to be here. And I was in the nonfiction section. So like I was looking at the books. I didn't see it. So I just started perusing and I wasn't looking at my phone. And then you came over and you're like, I just texted you. And I saw the text. That's like a normal thing in our relationship. And I went over. And I was like, I thought I thought you were messing with me. That's why I was like, wait, what? Why would I ever do that? For the record, <laughs> the reason why when you went right, you were wrong and I went left and I was right is you went to the old nonfiction, which of course the book <laughs> wouldn't be there. I went to the new nonfiction, the new oh, releases yeah. and found it. All right, let's get into it's the great. book. Uh, I just want to throw out a bunch of people that are in the book and a bunch of topics. Uh, I've heard over the years you talk about some of these things, but this is the first time you've put it all together into mm-hmm. one single resource. Uh, alter Ego. I always tell people this and I never give you credit because I want to feel smart. 
explain what's going on with alter ego and why so many successful people have an alter ego. Yeah, so I discovered this when I personally started um, doing a lot more like public speaking and interviewing people on stage. And I had never done that before and I was really nervous. But then I started doing this kind of thing where like, I was like, okay, well, I'm really, you know, shy and introverted and kind of nervous, like in my real life. But when I'm on stage, I have to like put on a show for the audience. The audience doesn't want to see somebody who's like nervous and not confident. So I kind of had in my head this idea of like confident Paulina on stage. And it's funny because like when I went on stage and I started interviewing the person, it felt almost as if like this other thing took over and suddenly I had the confidence and it was easy and whatever. Um, so I was like, I wonder if this is actually a thing. And when I started researching a lot of these people, I found that, for example, Beyonce, who you think is like this powerhouse, we went to her concert, you saw. Fire. Fire. Uh, she- Jay-Z was there too, boys, don't worry. Yeah, but Beyonce was the main um, show. Uh, <laughs> she, uh, the, the way she presents on stage, I mean, she's super confident. You would never ever think that she's actually incredibly introverted and shy in real life. And she's like, to create that persona and dress like that and dance like that, I would never do that in my normal life. So I had to create this version, um, this aspirational, almost like ideal version of herself called Sasha Fierce. That, that's, Sasha Fierce she gave her a name. Stage. Yeah. So Sasha Fierce on stage, Beyonce off stage. Uh, Kobe Bryant, during the lowest moments in his career, when he was like being booed on the court, he was like, you know what? I'm, when people are saying boo Kobe, he's like, I'm not going out there as Kobe. I'm going out there as the black mamba, this like snake. Killer. That, yeah, exactly. So he, it didn't affect him in the same way as if he identified as Kobe. David Goggins, same thing. He doesn't identify as David Goggins because he says David was a weak kid. He was bullied, he was insecure, whatever. I'm Goggins. And he said, he likes to say that he was uh, built, not born. And that just attests to the fact that like, you can create your identity and the person you are today does not have to be the person you are tomorrow. And yesterday, you actually introduced me to a new person who had an alter ego. Brian Dawkins. That's right. Last night, Polina <laughs> was talking about alter ego. I said, sit down right here, young child. Let me pull up YouTube. Let me show you from the archives of the internet. And I pulled up some Brian Dawkins highlights where he has two lockers. One is the Brian Dawkins he locker. He physically has two lockers. like. And the other locker is Weapon X. And mm -hmm. he talks about how when he goes on the field, he is in Brian Dawkins, that's Weapon X. Yeah, but I will say something really interesting. Um, over time, it's possible for yourself to get closer to the to your aspirational self to where they are one. So, for example, Beyonce was being interviewed by Oprah and she told her, by the way, like I killed Sasha Fierce. Sasha Fierce doesn't exist anymore because this is who I am now. Like I am confident. I don't need this extra psychological crutch to carry me on stage. I'd like to report a homicide. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's talk about Nims Persia. Uh, in the book, you talk quite a bit about uh, the ability to handle risk, and especially in times of uncertainty. Uh, Nims is probably one of the best examples of this in the world where uh, he continues to climb these mountains. He's probably one of the best mountaineers, climbers, whatever you want to call them, uh, in the world. And in the book, he basically says, like, nothing that you plan goes as planned on the mountain. So what can we take away from him specifically? Yeah, I wanna talk about him and then I wanna talk about like another mountaineer that's the flip side of that exact idea. 
So NIMS um, summited 14 death zone peaks. It had never been done before in the, um, in the amount of time. I think the last time it took like 14 years or something insane, but it took NIMS six months and six days to summit all 14 peaks, which is absolutely insane. If you haven't seen the Netflix film, it's great. Well, he also did crazy stuff during it. Like he was climbing the mountains mm -hmm. and he was doing it for time. But I think at least once, maybe twice, they would call him and be like, hey, Nims, I know you're like in the middle of this uh, race essentially against yourself, but like there's somebody stuck on the mountain. Will you go back and get them? And he yeah. would go back and actually get them and carry them down. Yeah, he uh, he like gave some of his oxygen to someone who was who needed oxygen on the mountain. And that's really, really dangerous because if you miscalculate something, it's he, he calls it a suicide mission. Um, but yeah, he, he's done all of that. Uh, but Nims, like his whole idea is that you have to be incredibly competent and prepared before undertaking something like this because nothing ever goes as planned. So if your body's not right, if your mind's not right, and one tiny thing goes wrong, again, a suicide mission. Um, so, so his whole thing is like competence is the key to doing these um, insane challenges. And is it competence is the mitigator to risk? Yes, in, in his mind, and, and I agree. But there's also a flip side to that. Um, Morgan Housel uh, talks about how risk has three sides. He says that there's the odds you will get hit, the average consequences of getting hit, and the tail end consequences of getting hit. So you can mitigate the first two. The last one is kind of like if you're an investor, if you're, any, if you're just a human living life, um, there will be unforeseen risk. And that risk could be a black swan event. It could be a global pandemic. Um, but he talks about how that tail end risk has the least likelihood to happen, but the most impact. And it's the one you cannot really prepare for. So another mountaineer is Conrad Anker, who I talk about in, in the book. He incredibly competent. He's a legendary mountaineer. Him and two buddies were climbing Mount Shishapangma and they were... I believe close to the top when all of a sudden an unforeseen event happened, an avalanche just came down and um, it was so close and they had so little time to prepare that he went to the left and his buddies went to the right. So there's three people mm -hmm. standing there and they saw the avalanche coming and they basically were like, run. Run and like pick a side. Yeah, like I'm out. Like that's a nightmare scenario. For exactly. Me. So, so it's like, so Conrad had like a broken collarbone. He suffered head lacerations but his buddies weren't found, their bodies weren't found for a number of years. So it's like that one stupid dumb luck decision that you made in that really, really consequential uh, event saved his life. So it's like, yes, you can prepare all you want. You can be as competent as you want and you can make all the right decisions, but that doesn't mean that you will get the outcome that. I'm playing 3D chess with you, you know how? Oh God, because I went left in the store and you went to the right. I, no, I went left, you oh. went right. <laughs> Survival, death. I'm just saying, oh, hey, I'm just making the connections. Gosh. All right, let's talk about Amelia Boone <laughs> and Courtney Dahlwalter. Uh, both of them, they love paint. Yeah. This is like, this is crazy. Both of them are these like ultra marathon runners. Uh, I think that Amelia Boone, if I remember correctly, she talks about like becoming friends with mm -hmm. pain and Courtney Dahlwalter calls it like the pain cave. Yes. What's going on with these women? Yeah, I think Amelia Boone's nickname is the Queen of Pain. <laughs> um, so they both kind of uh, are masterful at separating pain and suffering. But Amelia, and, and they both personify pain, which I think is really important. Amelia um, 
when she talks about like during a, a mud a tough mudder race she'll have something go wrong her ankle her you know whatever um and she's like instead of listening to myself i start talking to myself and the distinction here is when you listen to yourself you're like oh my god my foot hurts oh my god how am i going to get through the next 10 miles whatever but when you talk to yourself you're giving yourself the thoughts that you want to think um and put into your head so you're like uh hey my foot hurts but um but like your good foot, like you literally personify the foot as a, as a separate entity from you. So it doesn't feel as personal. Um, Courtney is fascinating. I mean, she takes, I watched this interview with her with Joe Rogan, where Joe kept trying to get her to like talk in depth about like, oh, but tell me philosophically how, and she's like, nope, I just do it. <laughs> um, she's very matter of fact and she sees pain is a place. So she's like, when I'm running these 100 mile races, she's had severe nausea, she's had a bleeding head injury, she's had a broken foot, she's had it all. But she's pushed through it. And they're like, how? How is that even possible? And she says that in her head, she visualizes like, the pain cave is there. I know I'm approaching it. As she approaches it, she's like, okay, it's I, I'm in it. Uh, things hurt really bad. But by thinking of it as a place you're in control of when you enter it and you're equally as in control when you leave so she's like i i know that eventually i'm gonna be on the other side so she doesn't and, and can i just add something here the personification of pain is really really important uh because it builds mental toughness and i've noticed that courtney Dawalter does this with the pain cave um David Goggins does this with, again, a place, a dark room. He's like, I go in the dark room as David Goggins. I look at myself in the mirror and I face myself and I say, you're fat, you're lazy, you're a liar. What are you going to do about it? He, there's a transformation that happens in there and then he leaves and becomes Goggins. Uh, Anthony Ray Hinton, he was somebody who wasn't seeking out pain voluntarily. He was shoved in there against his will when he spent 30 years on death row um, and he was for something he didn't do for something he didn't do. He was wrongfully, yeah, uh, in prison. But he watched 54 men walk past his cell to get executed by electrocution. And he managed to keep his mind sane. And he was in oftentimes in solitary confinement in a tiny, tiny cell by himself. Again, a place of suffering and pain. Um, and he says that in that place, he used his mind for good. So he would visualize traveling to England, having tea with the queen, uh, winning Wimbledon, marrying Halle Berry, things like that, that allowed him to escape his current reality. And the, the importance of this is that by visualizing pain as a place, it's almost like you're, you're one type of person. You go into this place of metamorphosis and you transform into somebody else. And David Goggins says, basically, in that dark room, if you don't break, you'll transform. And that's the case of all these people. So let's talk about Bob Bowman and Michael Phelps. This is the craziest thing, I think. Is uh, it the craziest? Me. I mean, Michael Phelps jumps in the water, I think at the Olympics. And while he's in the water, he gets water in his goggles. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not a goggles guy, but if I was wearing goggles and I got water in my eyes, I'm done. I'm going to stand up. Put my feet on the ground. I'm gonna take the goggles off. I'm gonna, you know, dangle them out there. <laughs> and get the this, water to drip out. Ladies and gentlemen, is why Anthony isn't at the Olympics. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then I put the goggles back on. I would kind of do each nose, make sure I get my the water out of my ears, and I'd keep swimming. Yeah. And I would lose. 
but he kept swimming with the water in his goggles. Explain how he did that and why he yeah. was so prepared for it. He basically this. did it blind, right? Like the reason he was able to do it blind is because his coach, Bob Bowman, for many, many years, basically his main coach throughout his career, um, wanted Michael to undergo uncertainty and create these uh, rehearsals for what could go wrong and how could he how he could react. So during practice, he would break his goggles and Michael Phelps was like, what the hell? And he's like, I want you to know how to pace yourself with breath and counting strokes instead of using visuals to get you to the other side. So in, in again, like at the Olympics, the unexpected happens. He gets water in his goggles. Now he knows, oh, yeah, I did that when he broke my goggles. So now I can like count strokes and know exactly where the wall is and where I need to turn. It's it's really hard to do, but that's why he's the best. He won the gold medal. So he did this blindfolded essentially yeah. and won the gold medal. Yeah. Which tells you that he's just one dominant, but two also is prepared. Mm-hmm. It's competence. Builds confidence. Competence builds confidence. I like that. All right. Jim Coke. Uh, Cook. Cook. Coke. Coke. Cook. Cook. Whatever. Whatever his name is. Boston Beer Company. Uh, he basically took this like big leap of faith to start a business, but he was rich before. Mm-hmm. And he was making what, like the equivalent of a million bucks mm-hmm. in today's dollars. And he just quit his job. And I was like, I'm going to go like be a beer brewer. Mm-hmm. Is that they call them? Beer yeah. brewers? All right. What's his story? <laughs> um, his story is basically Jim Cook was in his late 30s making $250,000 a year at Boston Consulting Group. Which is a million dollars Which today. is equivalent. Thanks, inflation. Um, but he uh, he was um, – so, so at the time – he was the only one in his lineage of people because the cooks came from Germany in the 1840s to the U.S. And each eldest son um, became a beer brewer. And they were big beer people in Germany. And at the time in the 90s, there was a joke that uh, water is stronger than American nah, beer. Nah, tell the real joke. Come on, let's go. They, you're, you're giving us the watered down version, no pun intended. Okay. Tell us the real joke. But like, some people don't get Okay, I'll, I'll say Trust it. me, my audience will understand okay, the joke. Your audience is the right they audience. They like sex jokes. <laughs> um, so they said- uh, the, She's the so joke, uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> the joke is, the joke is. Um, okay, so the joke is that American beer is like, making love in a canoe too fucking close to water. (laughs) So American beer, basically, it was very close to water, so it didn't have flavor. It wasn't like German beer. And and it was um, known that European beer was so much more dominant. Uh, So Jim was like, well, what if we change that? What if we make American beer that's flavorful and, and, and good and like people really like it? So he was rummaging through the family attic when he found his great-great-grandfather's original beer recipe from Germany. And he was like, whoa, what if I take this and create an American beer? Um, He told his dad his idea, and his dad was like, Jim, you're making 250K at Boston Consulting Group. This is the dumbest effing idea I've ever heard. So so he was like, okay. But he was really bored at BCG. So then – but he had a hard time. He had a kid. He had a wife. He had a mortgage. He was like – Am I really going to quit this amazing salary and go start something that I don't even know if it's going to work? Um, So he started asking himself the question, is what I'm doing scary or is it dangerous? And the difference between scary and dangerous, and I use this framework all the time in my life, is that 
if you do the scary thing, the scary thing is only scary for like a few days. You're scared to tell your boss. You're scared your college professor will be disappointed in your decision. You're scared what your friends will say. But dangerous is you looking back when you're 80 being like, damn, I wish I started that uh, beer brewing company. So he ended up deciding that he didn't want to stay in the dangerous situation. He wanted to take the scary risk. Let's talk storytelling. There's this uh, famous profile, I guess, uh, or article that was written. Uh, Gay Talese, I think is how you pronounce mm -hmm. the guy's name who wrote it. Uh, he went out and he was going to go uh, meet Frank Sinatra, legend Frank, to profile, Frank Sinatra, yeah. to profile him. But he had a cold. Mm -hmm. And uh, he writes this line. I wrote it down to make sure that I don't forget it because it's perfect. He says, Sinatra with a cold is Picasso without paint, Ferrari without fuel, mm -hmm. fire. <laughs> like... Gay Talese, if he had Twitter, be viral every single day. Uh, <laughs> explain like the importance of storytelling. He could have just been like, yo, Frank Sinatra had a cold, so I didn't get to talk to him. Right. But instead, he hits us with fire lines. Sinatra with a cold, it's Picasso without paint, Ferrari without fuel. Yeah. How important is the storytelling in today's day and age where everyone seems to have very low attention spans? Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, so, um, so Frank Sinatra has a cold is like the gold standard of profile writing. Uh, gay, Talese actually... Uh, pioneered a new form of journalism called narrative nonfiction. Because, what is that? Huh? What is that? Yeah, before before this, before that profile, the way that profiles and just news articles were written where it was very formulaic and it was very dry. He introduced fiction elements to tell a nonfiction story. So that's why it reads like that. It's very full of detail um, and context and nuance. And he sh it's, it's so ironic that the best profile and the gold standard of profiles. He never talked to the subject, but it shows like how it can be done. He talked to like a hundred people in Frank Sinatra's orbit. So he was able to get even a better portrait of the man than if he just talked to him. Um, and then, uh, and then I, in, in terms of storytelling, I think a lot of us think that this day and age, there's like, I, I was talking to Anthony Scaramucci yesterday and he was like, you know, today, the mooch, <laughs> the mooch. Uh, he said, today we can barely agree on what the facts are, let alone like anything else. And I was like, but that's not because we're not agreeing on what the facts are. That's because we have conflicting stories of what we believe the facts say in our interpretation of the facts, not the facts themselves. Um, and so in the book, I talk about these like incredible storytellers, one of them being um, Aaron Sorkin. He's very well known for um, the, the social network, the film. And which is Mark Zuckerberg and the inception of Facebook. And the way he uh, talks about it, he was interviewed about it. And he was like, I wasn't particularly interested in tech or startups or venture capital or anything like that. What drew me to this story in particular were that there were um, three different or two different lawsuits that had three different versions of the truth. So Eduardo was suing him, the Winklevoss twins were suing him, and then Mark had to defend himself. All three parties had different stories and um, the way he and he was like, and by the way, with the film, I didn't want to be like, here's the ultimate source of truth. He was like, I wanted to show all these competing versions of the truth. 
which I think he does very well in the film. Um, and he says to get a great story, basically story equals conflict plus intent. So he says the best stories have conflict that is laced with intent. When you tell a good story and you only talk about the problem, but not what the protagonist's intent is, it makes no sense. So he's like, Mark Zuckerberg, his goal wasn't, you know, money or wealth. It was freaking social status. And he was willing to plow through anything to get that. And um, any obstacle, the obstacle of the Winklevoss twins, his friend Eduardo, his girlfriend at the time, or the institution that is Harvard. He was willing to get through anything to get to his final destination and make Facebook this thing because he didn't get an invite to a fancy social socials club. For those that don't know about Aaron Sorkin's uh, early life, they should go and, uh, and learn about the guy was just. He was an addict. He never slept. He was doing cocaine like every night. And basically he would go to like a different uh, like world essentially. And well, he would sit there and he all night would just write. And he said that he was scared that it, without his addiction, he wouldn't be good. But the thing that actually stopped him, if I remember correctly, is that he got caught at the airport at TSA with his child there. And that's kind of what. Yeah, it's, it reminds me a lot of like Hunter S. Thompson's mm -hmm. uh, life. That guy's a legend. There's too. a lot of writers who are addicts. Yeah, well, Hunter S. Thompson addict would be one description. But <laughs> if you ever look at Hunter S. Thompson's daily schedule, it's insane. Like how the guy live. All right, let's move to uh, somebody who's an addict, but not for drugs. Uh, Tom Brady. He has a quote in the book. You got to limit inflation in the body, whether it's through your inflammation. diet. Inflammation. What I say? Inflation. Infl you got to limit inflation, too. <laughs> that is an important thing to see how my brain works. You got to limit inflammation in the body, whether it's through diet, nutrition or your thoughts. Right. Diet and nutrition. Cool. Got it. But thoughts is an interesting thing. You got to limit inflammation in your body through your thoughts. What's that mean? It's um, I have this idea of like a content diet um, that actually you helped me develop. Uh, but the idea that like, for Hel example, helped is, for is kind <laughs> for you. Go ahead. For example, when we met, I was watching a lot of like reality television, which included like The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, like all, all these all these shows that basically when you put that garbage in your brain, um, it like you see the world through a different lens. So you're constantly like, is he mad at me? Is she mad at me? Uh, did I say something wrong? Did I have it's like through the lens of relationships in a very negative way. And then you realize that like you're not putting difficult um, material in your brain. So you're just kind of like consuming junk food content. And what break the example, just so people are clear, because <laughs> I got you on my show now, oh, so no. I can I can hold you hostage and roast this you. This is really is uh no, if you sit and you watch a bunch of people arguing on television right. all day long, then naturally, whether you realize it implicitly or not, or uh, explicitly or not, is that then you go argue a lot with the people in your life because you're basically mirroring mm. what you just watched on television. So if you just put in your head all day long, idiots, you know, 25 women chasing one dude, and then you go into your real life, you start arguing with people. It's like, wait, hold on a second. Like, take the garbage out of your brain, right? <laughs> Let's put good information in, yeah. which I had to learn too, right? Like, I would read stupid stuff or watch stupid stuff, whatever. And then you quickly learn like, oh, if there's like high quality stuff that goes in, then actually your actions, the output ends up being high quality as well. Yeah. And it's not just um, it, it like it, that's not to say that all you read and all you listen to and whatever is just 
really difficult material that makes you think, it's okay to have a sliver of that, but just don't make it like your entire food content pyramid. Yeah, it's like dessert. You can do it like yeah. once a week and you're good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I, I, I want to touch on this thing that – so yes, like a content diet is determined by what you read, what you listen to, and what you, what you watch. But one thing that I actually learned from you – is that is that um, a part of your content diet is also who you hang out with because those conversations then lead to thoughts, which then lead to beliefs. So if you surround yourself with people who maybe like are your high school buddies that you know don't you don't have that much in common with anymore, you end up staying on surface level conversations. But when you have friends who you can actually talk about really interesting subjects with, you get new ideas. It's it's a much healthier uh, content in way to live but um and, and can i yeah. uh, add something real quick since you said that i taught you okay, that okay 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 um, it helped me is well i think that there <laughs> i think that there's a, a somewhat acceptance of this thing like don't surround yourself with people who talk about people surround mm -hmm. yourself with people who talk about ideas right uh, has been talked about often um but it's also surround yourself with people who have different life experiences and so one of the things throughout my entire life is i kind of feel like uh i made bus stops Right. Like I was on the bus and I went and OK, cool. I was in high school. I met a bunch of amazing people still yep. to this day. I think very highly of them. Right. And they all had a similar experience to me in high school. Yep. But then I got on the bus and they all went to a lot of the same schools. I went to a completely different school, went to a different bus stop. Right. Met a bunch of people there Then I went into the army and then I went to mm -hmm. uh, Silicon Valley. And then I went, you know, and, and I kind of went to all these different bus stops and I kind of collected friends. So I'm still in touch with many people at those different bus stops, but I never was like all in on one bus stop. I never thought of, okay, this is the only thing that I'm going to do. Yeah. I want the variety of experience and I want the different knowledge to take with me. And in some way, like the bus got smarter yeah. as we kept going down the road, right? Yeah. And then there's another- um... Put that in your book. Well, the, I, I did, but no. There's another thread in that that I don't know if it's in your little- you know, questions to ask, but I have a chapter on clarifying your thinking. And I, you know how I'm like fascinated with cults and like the people who join cults. I definitely think that- If you want to admit that publicly, yeah, <laughs> well, I Well, it's know in that. the book, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think like, I think that a lot of people who uh, right now, we live in a very tribal society. And, and James Clear one time was like, you know why it's so hard for people to change their beliefs, even if they think that like their beliefs are absurd. It's because uh, when you're asking somebody to change their beliefs, you're essentially asking them to change their tribe. And very few people are like, oh, I'm going to these are my friends. I'm going to go like make friends with another group. That's not how it works. And I think what you just said about the bus stops is like the reason that you and I don't have really strong beliefs about one thing um, is because, for example, for me, like I was born in Bulgaria. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. I moved to New York as an adult. I kind of always feel like an outsider, but also not just that. I've had a multitude of experiences and I've seen how different people think so I can understand why they make the decisions they can make. Therefore, I like Aaron Sorkin, I don't see something as like the ultimate source of truth. I see it more of like a grayscale based on your past experiences. And I think what you just said, like if you hadn't had those experiences where you went to one school, you went to war, you came back, like those are all things that shape your mind. And you're like, oh, I this one tribal group isn't the only source of truth. There's so many other ways to think. I went to six schools in 12 years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy.
I never even thought of it that way. All right. Uh, I want to talk about one more thing. Uh, Bruno Cuccinelli, yeah. which you found real early in our relationship, lifetime, whatever. And the king of cashmere. The king of cashmere. Uh, not to be confused with our boy, the wolf in cashmere. Oh, God. Who is that? Uh, LVMH guy. Oh, it- but I don't think he's called the wolf. Is he called the wolf in cashmere? I think so. I, okay, I just look. Is, I got a big brain. Some stuff stays in there. I think that's one of them. Uh, all right. So Bru- Bruno Cuccinelli says that he rereads. Uh, what is his name? Brunello. Brunello. So- sorry, Cuccinelli. Um, <laughs> it, he rereads every year Marcus Aurelius's uh, Meditations. Famous book. Been around for yeah. thousands of years. This dude got the same problems that we got today. Trying to figure out himself. And obviously he's writing his meditations down on uh, probably parchment at the time. Now we have it digital. Um, but he says that the reason why he reads it every single year is because each year he's a different person and he gets different things out of it. Yeah. So in his 20s, he learned some things. In his 30s, other things were more important. In his 40s and 50s, whatever. Explain like how people can use that in their everyday life to actually improve and compound over time. Yeah, well, again, like if you read a certain book – a lot of us, when we're excited about a book, we tend to speed read through it. And you're like, oh my God, this was the best book ever. But how often do you go back and reread it? And I found myself the same thing that Brunello talks about is like, when you reread a book at a different stage in your life, you're able to pull out different things that you never saw the, the time before. Uh, for example, let's say you read it a fr- the first time when you're 20s and then when you read it in your 30s, now you have kids and you're like looking at it through the lens of a parent and you're taking away different um, things that you might as you might have when you were 20. All right. Now that we're good with the uh, book, let me close my uh, little notes here. So Hidden Genius, The Secret Ways of Thinking That Power the World's Most Successful People. This is Polina's first book. It says Polina Marinova Pompliano on the cover. Very long name now. Welcome. Uh, And there's uh, James Clear. says a goldmine of actionable ideas and useful advice from top performers in all fields. James Clear, for those of you who don't know, author of the number one bestseller, Atomic Habits. We then go on the back here. We've got Morgan Housel. Brandon Stanton, Danny Meyer, Patty Sellers, Kat Cole, and James, known as Jim O'Shaughnessy. I like that he used James, though. And so the book, as of today, is on bookshelves. Before I let you go, I want a prediction or a guess. How many books do we think get sold in the first week and in the first year? I will also <laughs> guess, and then oh, we will see who's no. closer. This is I know this is like your worst nightmare, but we're, we're going to do it. <sighs> Why would I ever do that? <laughs> What do you think? It's like, I don't do price predictions. You don't do price predictions. I don't do book predictions, book sales predictions. Can we hit number one on Amazon? I would love to hit number one on Amazon. What's the highest in pre-sales did you get on the list? In pre-sales? Yeah, during the pre-sale period, what was the highest you got on the list? Oh, I got to number 500. Oh, all right. That's easy. Now the book's live. Let's go, people. (laughs) Let's go, people. Yeah, I would love to. All right, so all people have to do is they go either on Amazon and they buy it or or the local bookstore. Go to the local bookstore, support local. I got it. Support independent That's right. And if they do it and they take a photo and they tweet it at you, do they get anything? Um, Well, you could offer something for the people. (laughs) I'm busy. I I already – let's take it from the end back to the beginning. Nice little storytelling here. Um, (laughs) When we went to Barnes & Noble, you went right, death. I went left, life. And uh, we found those books. You were 
taken over with emotion. I, on the other hand, being the you amazing, your... being the amazing <laughs> husband and father that I am, was chasing our daughter around the store as she tried to grab every book off the shelf. I would <laughs> dive and knock it back in so that there was no damage to the store because I want to buy all these stupid books that I didn't want. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't let you leave the store until you signed them. Yeah, and you. Because I thought hold you didn't on. ask for permission. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I just want people to understand <laughs> the pain, the pain cave I live in every day. <laughs> Sinatra with the cold pomp at the bookstore. Don't worry. Listen to this. This is not comedy. I went out. and I got a pen from the people. And right. to get a pen, I said, hey, my wife wrote a book. The book's over there. She's going to sign them. Can I have a, pe a pen, please? They said, oh. No problem. Here's the pen. Okay. I took the pen. I brought it to you. And then you, because you're a nerd. You are a nerd. I was like, I have to you ask for there. permission. Hold on. You sat there and you're like, I can't <laughs> sign the book unless I go and I ask for permission. I said, it's your book. Sign the book. Put yeah, it back on the shelf. Nobody knows that. And you said, but I need to ask for permission. What if they get <laughs> mad at me? Tell them, it's my book. Like, no, but I have to ask for permission. And we stood there for five minutes of my life. I was in the pain cave negotiating with basically a book terrorist who wouldn't sign the books until she got permission. Uh. Yes, for the record, I triumphantly convinced her to sign the books. You signed them. I tweeted it and was like, hey, go get it. And next thing you know, people were like, hey, I went and I picked it up. Yeah, was that was cool. really cool. Thank you so much. I People did go and they did buy the signed books. Um, it was really cool. Now, that's it, what we call in the showbiz a setup because I just want everyone who's watching on video to know that the book that I have right here is also signed. Excited, excited to take you on a learning adventure. <laughs> Polina. <laughs> Any last words for the people? Have, what did you think of the book? I thought the book was fantastic. I'm only offended for two things throughout this entire process. Okay. One, I was not asked for a quote for the front or back cover. <laughs> My quotes were relegated to in private. I think it's excellent. I would have had some fire oh, to okay. put, but you know, it's all right. I'm not as big as James Clear and all these other fine people. Uh, and then the second thing is uh, I've actually read the book about 17 times. Uh, but I never actually picked up the book and opened it until now when it was about to be. And I have listened 17 times. Do you read it to me? Right. Every single Fun individual fact, chapter. If you want to improve your writing, read it out loud because you'll, your ears catch mistakes that your eyes miss. Go Correct. On. So I got read the book 17 times. But then I went to another pain cave. And for the last Stop four months, <laughs> every day, Polina has asked me. Are you going to read the physical book yet? Are well, you going to read yeah. the physical book yet? And now I have. The reason I have is because I was waiting for – now it's showtime. Now it's showtime. You were doing the pre-sale stuff. Now it is time to sell books. Oh, man. We're going to get this book in every single person's hands. And I think that the measure of success is if people put it on their little bookshelves and when they're on Zoom, you see <laughs> you see it there and it's like a status symbol. I just – Like, yeah, I read the book. Yeah, but see, like to me, it's more like – I don't know. I – when you read the book, I would love to hear your feedback, but like if it if something resonated with you and it genuinely changed something that you do or a habit or something for the better, let me know. Like those are the that that means so much more to me. Than it is the difference between you and I. <laughs> it's like I see a number and I'm like, "Oh, there's a game to play. No. How many books can you sell?" And you're like, "I don't care about the book sales. I just want people to like learn yeah, from the book." Yeah. I really do. All right. Where can we send people to find the book? hiddengeniusbook.com or Amazon. Or Amazon, but like you have to search. There you just click. And it goes right there, yeah. buys. All right. Uh, my book says uh, no price on it. How much is it? Um, well, uh, it depends where you live. 
Okay. Twenty seven dollars. Damn, y'all no, get trying no, to get I mean, smart. Like Euros, dollars. Oh, got it. Okay. Know? All right. All right. And where can we find uh, you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at at what do you call that? It's an at symbol. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> Paulina underscore Marinova. Because freaking Twitter, I have a long thing with Twitter. That's how I found playing in my DMs. All right, guys. Great False. episode. False. I You're really appreciate it. You're going to end on a fake news <laughs> I appreciate you coming and doing this. It was a very far walk for you. Uh, it's just a pleasure to get to meet you and uh, learn from you. So I hope everyone goes and buys the book. It was a pleasure um, getting to answer your questions. We could work on your uh, presence a little bit on your podcasting um presence we I have need white an pants alter, on you right need now. an alter ego you do that is your alter i do ego. I, I didn't want to bring it up earlier but just real quick maybe we'll end on this you probably don't realize this but every morning when i wake <laughs> up yeah i got white pants on yeah look, look at that, that. i'm not saying <laughs> but i am saying i got white pants is on is it the chair or is it the pant right. you don't so, know you don't realize this, but every morning when I get up out of bed, I know it's dark and everything, right? Mm -hmm. But you don't see me. I pick up my left leg and then I pick up my right leg. You never see me do this? And put your pants, nope. white pants on nope. one leg at a time. Anthony woke up and I had to get in my pomp suit. Let's go hit the day. <laughs> <laughs> She's Anthony. so embarrassed. She's Anthony. so embarrassed. This All is right. like. Yeah. I love you. Congratulations. <laughs> the book's you. amazing. Everyone go get it. Hidden genius. See you guys next time. Thank you. <laughs>